We have been working through the book of Matthew, and uh, we're about halfway through chapter 23, and uh, we've been looking through, through especially uh, a little more detailed at chapter 23 as we have been talking about uh, Pharisees and hypocrites. Uh, the Pharisees were uh, people who got their, their life, not from God, who is the giver of life and the uh, giver of abundant life and freedom. Uh, they didn't get their life from God, but they got their life from their rules, from do's and don'ts, and from especially feeling superior over other people. And so instead of looking at God for all things, they began to turn their attention to, look at how much better I'm doing than everyone else around me. Look at how much more spiritual I am. Look at how much I'm doing and they're not doing. And all of a sudden they found that once they've taken their, their, their focus off Jesus, they find themselves, though they don't know it, in a place that's actually far from God. I mean, here is the group of Pharisees who, uh, with, with all their heart, would believe that they were closer to God than anyone else around them. That they were the ones that God would go, woohoo, good job. But here is Jesus the very presence of God, God in the flesh, standing before the Pharisees, and they want to kill him. And that's how far they have gotten off track from God, that they actually want to kill the Son of God. And sometimes the question is like, how in the world can someone just get that off track? And, and, and it happens whenever we begin to take our focus off Jesus. I mean, Hebrews says that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus and if we, we're eyes, our eyes begin to wander to look at what others are doing or not doing, look at how much better I am, is the moment you're in trouble. I mean, just because you think that you are close to God and you think that you are closer to God than other people, I mean, doesn't make you uh, automatically have a relationship with God. And there's probably no more of a clear verse than Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who uh, do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I, this is God saying, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. In other words, you were never in relationship with me. You never trusted me. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, these are people who are, who are saying all the right things, Lord, Lord, who are doing many of the right things, prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles. Those are all great and wonderful things, but they didn't have a relationship with God. I mean, just because you do a lot of stuff for God does not make you right with God. Just because you acknowledge who God is does not mean you're in relationship with Him. And James says that even, even Satan, you know, believes God's word and knows that he is God, but, I mean, he's not in relationship with God. I mean, these Pharisees were people who tried to do all the right things, who thought they were better, who thought they were the most religious people around, but they were far from God. And in this text, Jesus actually says that they're childs of hell rather than a child of God. That's, that's how far they have wandered. And this is a warning to us. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that the only way we have a relationship with God is through Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you do or don't do or how much that you think you're better than other people, it's about Jesus. It always goes back to Jesus. Now, in this text, it says that only those who do the will of my Father, 
Those are the ones who will be a part of the kingdom. And we know what his will is in 1 John chapter 3. This is God's command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. That this is the foundation that we would love Jesus and love people. And hopefully that sounds familiar because that's our mission statement, right? That it just goes back to loving Jesus. That is the foundation. And these Pharisees were not there. They wanted to kill Jesus. They were blind and deceived. And, and subtly, sometimes we can fall into the same kind of pharisaical trap. And Jesus in this text today, as we look at, begin to look at the seven woes, as they're known, uses some pretty heavy language with the Pharisees. Uh, he, um, because they're blind and deceived, he's got to use uh, some pretty hard-hitting language. In this text, he calls them hypocrites five times, blind guides twice, blind fools, blind men, blind Pharisee, a whitewashed tomb, snakes, a brood of vipers, and a child of hell. And this is coming from Jesus towards the Pharisees. And I think he's just trying to do whatever he can to catch the attention of these guys because they're, they're just so deceived. They're so stuck in their rules and their religion, and they are missing the very heart of God. And that's the last place we want to ever, ever be. So let's jump into our text, and we're on verse 13. And so the first of the seven woes. Uh, Verse 13, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And, And remember Jesus said before that these people did not practice what they preached. And that's, that's a hypocrite, right? Someone who wears a mask, who pretends to be someone else. And again, that was these guys, as we talked about. Then he says, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And so the picture is a door. If you picture like the kingdom of heaven and all its glory, and there's this big door to get into the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, and people are seeking God, and they're looking for God, and they come up to the door, and they're ready to, to, to go in to be a part of the kingdom, and the Pharisees slam the door in their faces before they get in. Meaning, that, as Jesus said, they're not on the inside. They're on the outside, actually keeping people from the kingdom of God. Yet, interestingly, they thought they were right on with God. They were the ones really bringing people into the presence of God. And Jesus says, look, you guys are so deceived that you are actually hindering people from the kingdom, not helping, that they were roadblocks to the kingdom. And that's not what we want to be. And because all of us are sinners and because all of us mess up at times, there'll be times when we become a roadblock to the kingdom, but we want to do whatever we can, as we've talked about, to work the hypocrisy out of our lives to work the spiritual pride out of our lives, as we talked about last week. And we need to work out of our lives any kind of thing that's blocking people from the kingdom. We need to be a conduit to the kingdom. And all throughout church history, there have been, been times in church history where Christians have really gotten in the way of people meeting Jesus. I mean, we could look to like the Crusades, uh, these military ex, uh, expeditions that were done in the name of Jesus Christians were going to go conquer these people and these nations and wiped out many people in the name of Jesus or the, the Inquisition where they decided to try to wipe out heresy by torturing people, right? It's a way to bring people to know Jesus. See? Jesus said, you're to, you know, you'll know you're my disciples by your love, so we'll just torture you yeah, and kill you. It's <laughs> a way to do it. And even today, I mean, we have people 
uh, who hold up signs of hatred and signs that are just, this just caused Christians to be a roadblock rather than a conduit. Again, Jesus said, people are going to know that you're Christians by your love, not by holding up signs of hatred and, you know, God hates you or whatever it might be. And so we don't want to be like that. We want to be people who are conduits to the kingdom, that we are actually helping people meet Jesus, helping people come closer to the kingdom. And perhaps one of the central texts in the Bible that really explains this well is 1 Corinthians 9. This is Paul speaking. He said, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So Paul being very selfless, not that I'm going to maintain all my preferences and my ideas and my culture and I'm going to stand here and say, you come meet Jesus. It's like Paul's like, I'm going to serve you and do whatever it takes so that you might become a part of the kingdom. And he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And so when Paul was, was trying to bring Jews to Jesus and those under the law to Jesus, he kind of entered their culture, if you will. I mean, he knew he was no longer under the Old Testament law. I mean, Hebrews and Galatians makes that clear that the Old Testament uh, covenant was obsolete because it's been replaced by the new covenant. But, you know, when he was ministering to the Jews, you know what he did with his buddy Timothy, who was ministering with him? He made him get circumcised. Because to the Jews, someone who wasn't circumcised was pretty offensive. I really don't know how they ever checked this out, who was or wasn't, but... I don't know, Uh, but anyways, (laughs) he wasn't circumcised, and Paul says, because we're going to go minister to the Jews, we don't want to have anything that is a roadblock to the kingdom, so Timothy, sorry, you will need to be circumcised. There's another time uh, Paul did something pretty radical. He actually took part in uh, seven days, did this purification ceremony, which he shaved his head, and and they actually offered up an Old Testament offering for him in the end. I mean, it's pretty edgy. But he was doing whatever he could do to win people to Jesus and not be a roadblock. It's raining. feel bad for all those campers. Aren't you glad you're in church today and not in a tent? (laughs) And then he goes on. So so to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And when Paul uses the weak, he means those and he mentions that a few places, means those who are very legalistic, who like a lot of rules. And when he perhaps was ministering to those who had a lot of rules, he would wear a tie and use a King James-only Bible kind of a thing, right? Uh, uh, when, interesting enough, when he went to the Gentiles, his missionary friend Titus, Paul didn't make him be circumcised because he was ministering to the Gentiles. And then he says this, and this is the important phrase. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. That Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Paul's saying, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, he wants to bring people to Jesus. And I hope that we kind of have that heart. And so, I mean, it would maybe look like today if you wanted to go minister to bikers, you'd buy some leathers, maybe get a tattoo, and get a really loud bike, right? 
Maybe you want to go minister to those guys. Or man, if you want to do like hip-hop culture, you would kind of lower your jeans down a lot and listen to some funky music, right? And get some dance lessons from Kelvin because you're going to go hit the hip-hop people, right? Whatever it takes. But this does not mean watering down the gospel. does not mean changing the Bible because Paul says right here, he says, I do this for the sake of the gospel, not like, well, you know, I know Jesus says he's the only way, but you know, really, we'll just, just pretend that's not there. I mean, we need to maintain the truth of the gospel, but if there's anything else that is a roadblock to the gospel, we need to work at getting rid of that, which means sometimes as Christians, we need to let go of our preferences so that we can engage our c- culture well. I mean, our culture is not living in the 1960s anymore, by the way. Yet it's funny, if you want to go back 50 years, sometimes all you got to do is walk into a church. And you go, well, this is what it was like 50 years ago. And, and sometimes we're, we're just so disconnected from our culture that it becomes a roadblock. Now, again, we don't water down the gospel, but we do whatever we can not to be a roadblock. And so it's an interesting discussion that we can have. Like, what are things maybe in our church that, that, that is a roadblock to the kingdom? What am I doing that is a roadblock to the kingdom? Uh, my attitudes or action or example or whatever it might be. There's been some cool examples of this throughout church history, like uh, Hudson Taylor, who is the, the founder of uh, the China Missions, who brought hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people to Christ. This guy had a real heart for the people in China. And as he's in England, he says this, can all the Christians in England sit still with folded arms while these multitudes in China are perishing, perishing for lack of knowledge, for lack of of that knowledge which England possesses so richly. And so he goes into medical training because he's going to go be a missionary. He lives uh, in poverty to train himself how to live as a poor person. He gets all ready. He studies the scriptures and he goes to China. And things do not go well. They end up calling him the black devil because he wore this long English trench coat and he came with all his English culture. He made no headway into the culture and then he decided that he would actually take that verse of paul seriously that i've become all things to all men that that i might win some and he actually decided to get rid of his english clothes and to wear chinese clothes he actually decided to change his hairdo he went with one of these q hairdos like shaved and long ponytail eventually grew it out he had to wear a fake one at at first for a little while And, and and he totally entered the culture didn't change the gospel But that change where he got rid of his own preferences and entered that culture, all of a sudden, everything changed. People started coming to him. He started winning people to Jesus. And and, and it was amazing what happened. And he's one of the most famous missionaries of all time. Someone who's willing to put his preferences away for the sake of the gospel. Another guy is uh, Father Damien, who uh, in the 1800s had a heart for the lepers in the Hawaiian Islands. There's this one little village that was kind of tucked away had over 800 lepers in this little village. Uh, They didn't have a church. They didn't know about Jesus. He had a real heart for those people, but he knew the only way to reach these people would be to enter their village and probably he would end up contracting leprosy. And as he presented himself to the village, he says this to them, uh, that he'll be one who will be a father to you who loves you so much that he does not hesitate to become one of you, to live and die with you. 
And eventually, uh, as he got there, the first thing he did was set up a church and began to, to share Jesus with these people, but he ended up contracting leprosy, and he died a leper. I mean, to the Jews, become like a Jew, to the Gentiles, like a Gentile. This guy became a leper in order to serve the lepers. So whatever roadblock is in the way, he said, I'm going to lay those down for the sake of the gospel. I mean, what, what in your life is a roadblock to those around you? And we need to make sure that we have a heart for people. I mean, Jesus is so good. <laughs> I mean, we are so thrilled to know Jesus. I mean, we, we want that for other people. All right, so verse 14. Where in the world is vo- verse 14? If you have your Bible, you probably won't have a verse 14 in your Bible, by the way. It's something you may never really notice. Unless you have an older, like King James, it'll be in there, or uh, maybe a NASB. It might be in brackets or something like that. But most... Uh, modern translations won't have a verse 14. And some people say, well, what is the deal with that? Did they take it out because it was mean? Uh, Older versions will have this verse in it. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour a widow's property, and as a show, you pray long prayers. This is directly the same as Mark 12 and Luke 20 which says the same thing. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be most uh, punished severely, which that is not in. Now, all of our best and and oldest manuscripts don't have verse 14. When they translated the King James, uh, they didn't have as many manuscripts as we do now. Uh, And so our translations are actually far better than they were a couple hundred years ago because we have so many manuscripts. And so we can almost be certain that verse 14 is not original. And so that's not why it's not that's why it's not in your Bible. Now, if you're kind of interested in this stuff about manuscripts and how do we know if our Bible can be trustworthy or not, I posted a little video on our Facebook page if you want to check it out called uh, "It's What We Have Now, What They Had Then" by Dr. Dan Wallace. He was a, a brilliant, one of the best Greek scholars in the world, actually. So uh, no verse 14, so we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> All right, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I mean, these people are so legalistic that they have a hard time winning people to God in their mind, and so they got to travel real far to find somebody. And when they finally find someone who is willing to subscribe to their system of rules and, and religion, Jesus says that they make them twice as much a child of hell, meaning that the Pharisees themselves weren't children of God, and these Pharisees' followers were even farther from God than the Pharisees. And this sometimes happens when sometimes you as a teacher, sometimes your students will be more zealous and, and, and you know, full of, of energy than you are. And this is what happened to some of the Pharisees, that they were actually not just blocking the door to the kingdom, but actually moving people farther away from the door. And we got to be careful that when we are bringing people to Jesus, that we're bringing people to Jesus. Not to our own systems, not to our own rules, not to our own ideas, but to Jesus and, and his word. Luke chapter 6 says, everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. That's why James chapter 3 says, you got to be very careful if you want to teach because they're going to be held in a stricter judgment. Like my job here, it's a dangerous job when it comes to the judgment because I have effect on you. And if I lead you away from Jesus, I'm in big trouble. 
So I, if I'm ever leading you away from Jesus, please come up and whack me in the head and real hard, right? Because it, we want to make this place about Jesus and his word because he is the Savior, not me. But, but all of us are teachers in some ways, whether you're teaching your kids or you're teaching your coworkers through your example at work or whatever it might be. And again, you, you don't want to be a roadblock to the kingdom. You want to be welcoming people into the kingdom. Now, we should strive like Paul to be able to say, to our family members, the people we work with at school, to say, hey, look, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then verse 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath, you blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. The Pharisees had this elaborate system of oaths. So they could, if they were really serious about something, could swear by something in this category. But if it wasn't so serious, they could swear by something in this category. And if they thought they really wanted to get out of it, then they could swear by an oath in this kind of category. So all these categories of oaths, the things they could swear about, depending on how serious they were, right? And Jesus is basically saying, you guys are ridiculous. I mean, you're making a mockery of God. You, you, you need to be trustworthy people. This is what this is about. That we should be trustworthy enough to let our yes be yes and our no but mean no. And this is what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon of the Mount, talking about the same thing. I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So Jesus is teaching us that we've got to be careful about swearing, I'll swear to do this or whatever it might be, or using oaths. And the idea here again is that because Jesus is in us, we should be trustworthy, that we should be people of integrity, that if people are constantly asking, do you really mean this? Do you promise? Do you, do you, you got to swear? It means they probably don't trust you. And why is it that they don't trust you? I mean, when it comes to people who are close to us, our friends, we shouldn't have to make promises or swear by things. They should just know that, hey, Jesse keeps his word. And if I don't keep my word, I'm going to ask for forgiveness and really apologize, but we're to be full of integrity. A scholar, uh, New Testament scholar, Craig Bloomberg said, Jesus' disciples should be people of such integrity, of character, and truthfulness, of heart, that whatever they say is absolutely believable and dependable. A person of integrity is one who, in daily conversation, is so truthful, dependable, genuine, guileless, and reliable that his or her words are believed without an oath. And and this should be our goal. Now, this isn't always the case. 
In fact, even the Apostle Paul, at times, he would swear by something. And there's a few texts in the Bible like that. Uh, like 2 Corinthians, he says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes or no. Or Galatians 1, I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. And so there is a time and a place, perhaps, for us to swear by something or make an oath. Usually that is when it's, we're dealing with people who don't know us well, who don't really know that we're full of truth and integrity, and they don't really know us well, so they don't know whether to trust us or not. We may, and I think this is what Paul is getting at here with these churches. Or when you get married, civil things, right? Or you stand in a court, you might have to take an oath, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But he's talking about being truthful. Can these Pharisees, if they wanted to get out of something, they could use this kind of oath. And so you didn't know whether to trust them or not. And again, that becomes a roadblock to the kingdom. If people can't trust you, I mean, why are they going to trust you and what you say about Jesus? If you kind of go back on your word here, there, and, and everywhere. Colossians 4. Let's finish with this. Here Paul really just shows his heart for, for wanting people to meet Jesus, to not be in a roadblock. And he says, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Paul says here, pray that God would open a door for our message. And this is the foundation of welcoming people into the kingdom, that we need to be in prayer for our friends and our family members, for those we're talking to, because obviously if Paul is saying, pray that God will open a door, that means God can open a door. It means he can't open a door. It means prayer is very powerful. I mean, we can stand in front of someone and, and blab all day if we want, but if the Spirit of God is not, not moving, then this is why we need to pray. So Paul says, pray that doors might be open. And then he says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. That I wouldn't make a fool of myself, that my words wouldn't be a roadblock, that I would have wisdom. And then he says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders making the most of every opportunity that we need to be wise. Not, not a roadblock, not a stumbling block, but wise. And then he says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that's with truth, so that you may know how to answer everyone, that our conversations are to be full of grace and full of truth and, and just to not be a roadblock, okay? So I hope none of you uh, are going to hold up signs of hatred or start the next inquisition or uh, crusades or whatever it might be, that, that we would be a church that just welcomes people into the kingdom, that uh, we would be people who are willing to serve others, sometimes put away our preferences, that others might uh, meet Jesus. All right? Invite the worship team up, and uh, let me just pray. God, we pray that you might search our hearts, that you might search this church. God, if there are things that we are doing individually or corporately that are a roadblock, God, to people meeting Jesus, God, we ask you would reveal those things to us. God, that you would help us to be a conduit to the kingdom and not a stumbling block or a stumbling stone. And that if anything, God, is going to be a stumbling stone, may it be Jesus, because that's what he is, as he said himself. Uh, God, we pray for grace on our lives. We pray for grace on this church. God, you would help us to be witnesses of this great message of a changed life. 
of forgiveness, of power, of your kingdom. So God, may you work in us. And we thank you, God, that you're so good. In Jesus' name, amen.